my heart opened up. And so, um, so that for me felt like a very real practice. Um, it wasn't sitting in the cushion being removed, imagining something, but it was remembering. And it's, it seems to me that, that our practice is really remembering our humanity. And if it takes me away from humanity um, into some spiritual realm, then that's not the practice that I'm interested in. Dr. Catherine Anraka Hondorp Sensei is a Soto Zen Buddhist priest and an authorized Zen teacher in the White Plum lineage of Taizan Mayazumi Roshi. Anraka Sensei is co-founder with her spouse, Ruman Ilda Baldokin Sensei, of Two Stream Zen, a dedicated practice space for people of color in West Hampton, Massachusetts, United States. Anraku Sensei's passion for social justice arose from growing up white in a northeastern U.S. urban black community. Born to a Dutch Reformed Church minister father and an early childhood educator mother in a multiracial family during the times of the civil rights movement in the United States, racial inequities were painfully apparent. Anraku Sensei began her Zen studies with John Dido Lori Roshi at Zen Mountain Monastery in 1987. In 1996, she began studying with Enkyo Ohara Roshi. Anraku Sensei received Dharma transmission from Enkyo Roshi in 2009. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I am your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We have launched a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition, and listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow can try a month for only $7 by using the promo code SBB when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. Well, thank you for coming on Sit, Breathe, Bow. Raka Sensei, I really appreciate it. Um, it's good to be here, Ian. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you you came to Zen. You were raised, it looks like, in a religious family. You had a minister for a father. What brought you in into this tradition? And... Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a good question. It feels like, uh, uh, life's path brought me to this Zen tradition and has continued to inform, um, how I practice. Um, I, I'd say that a lot of my inspiration came from the conflict, uh, between what I felt inside and what I was experiencing on the outside in regards to uh, the church that I was brought up in, the family that I was brought up in, and the community, and the inner reality of um, wanting to know who I was. 
And uh, so that was kind of the beginning. And then the, the path kind of took me in many, many different directions um, through dance as an expression um, to practicing uh, with different uh, teachers. Some of them <laughs> um, taught me what not to do um, and uh, eventually led me to Zen uh, where where I got really drawn in to the teaching that showed me that that I was the only one that could actually penetrate into the truth of my existence and uh, what this was to be alive. So, um, so I guess it was it was that which brought me to the practice of zazen. First, was finding a method that allowed me to do that kind of uh, deep work um, in community. So was there a question that you were working with when you were younger or like, why, um, why keep yeah. searching? Um, the question was, uh, because, and a lot of it comes from my upbringing, uh, growing up as a, a white girl in, in my school where I was, uh, the only white girl in my class up, up through grade school until we moved when I was a teen, early teenager. Um, that it didn't fit. It was somehow I felt uh, a deep connection to other people. And in many ways, I felt that I was very different. So I, um, I had an experience uh, standing outside of a church when I was quite young, where it was this deep sense of uh, knowing that, uh, that something was not the way it seemed. And, uh, and for a moment, it was like, uh, I knew that there was something, something else in terms of who I was. And so that, that kind of question, uh, brought me, uh, ultimately to koan practice and to, uh, sitting zazen. Uh, that question of, uh, who am I? Like, really, who am I? <laughs> Um, and the fact that it didn't match, that I wasn't, um, I wasn't being, mm, I didn't fit in terms of, uh, the society that, and the family and the, the, even the, the sexuality that I was assigned. Um, it was a surprise to me when I started to emerge as a teenager, uh, um, in terms of, uh, my, my sexuality being being connected more woman to woman and uh and so there were a lot of questions that i had and i wasn't finding the answers and um when i would have people who would tell me what the answers were uh ultimately life showed me that i i had to mm, that that wasn't where i was going to get the answers and so when i had my first interview with with dido uh, I went in very, very skeptical, and I said, "I don't believe that anyone can teach me anything." And <laughs> and uh, I love yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he uh, kind of surprised me because he said, "He said absolutely." He said, "If someone tells you they're going to teach you anything, run as fast as you can in the opposite direction." And uh, that was uh, what hooked me. And uh, yeah. 
So how did you get to the point of, of meeting with that Oroshi? Uh, did someone bring you there? Did uh, How did what, I end up in yeah. it then? Yeah, um, quite reluctantly. <laughs> um, I was uh, about, how old was I? I was 30 years old, actually, when I first stepped into a, a Zen monastery. And prior to that, I had had experiences doing... Um, open-eyed meditation with a, a, a very wild um, uh, teacher, Calvin Holt, who would integrate uh, uh, feasts, beautiful like food events with, with uh, open-eyed meditation and dancing. <laughs> and so oh, it was quite, uh. yeah, it was quite wild, but it, um, there was something that uh, that really drew me into into that work, and then um, I also uh, went through a very difficult time uh, when I was uh, about 17, 18 years old, and I was dancing at the time. I was a dancer in New York City, and um, that question was still bothering me. Like, you know, who am I? What am I doing here? Um, I love dance, but something was very, there was this dissatisfaction, you know, this, what we would call dukkha in, in Zen. Um, and so I said, well, let me just go to California. I was in New York at the time. And so I took my money, went to California. And uh, in about three days, I met these wonderful people who invited me to their house and then invited me up to their uh, community in uh, Boonville, California. Um, and after three, you know, t telling me that they were a Christian commune, sh short version of a longer story ended up to be, uh, uh, recruiting arm of the uh, Sun Young Moon's church, the Moonies. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, after three weeks of being with them and really experiencing the, uh, mm, fallibility of our mind to be manipulated, I left very convinced that I would never again uh, let anyone uh, take over my my mind or my thoughts. I was very, very critical. And uh, so when I was, when my partner at the time uh, told me uh, that, that she had found a Zen monastery, I was very, very skeptical. And actually went to the monastery for introduction to Zen uh, with the intention to convince her that it was a religious cult and she should get out of it. Mm. So meeting with Dido, that was kind of the background to that question. And finding out that it was really a practice that, that I had to take on for myself um, and that I wasn't going to get answers, but only bigger, deeper questions um, that it really, really, uh, piqued my interest. And, uh, and that was how I got involved in the practice very skeptically at first. And, uh, yeah, so I, I really appreciate that skeptic in me. Um, and also the questioning that practice of questioning with koans that was offered to me really fit, uh, for me, that style. So you were with, um, it looked like you were with Daido Roshi or, or that community for about 10 years. And then you, you found Enkyo Roshi, um, or 
you started studying with her maybe about 10 years into your journey? Yeah, well, well, actually, I um, met Enkyo Roshi, um, who wasn't a Roshi, but was a senior student uh, at Zen Mountain Monastery. Oh. And that's that's where I first met her. And um, and just really connected with her. Um, and uh, for a number of reasons, uh, one was that she uh, was a lesbian and that that it was important for me to also have have women, strong women leadership. Mm-hmm. And um, and also that uh, she had a Zendo that was close to where I lived in New York City. And so um, I began right away as soon as I started practicing at Zen Mountain Monastery, sitting with a small group. Um, of, which later became Village Zendo. Um, so I was uh, studying with Dido as my teacher and uh, also sitting with, with Enkyo until I realized that actually uh, Enkyo was my teacher. <laughs> it's, I mean, Dido was my teacher and I always hold a wonderful warm spot in my heart for him. He was very kind to me. Um, but my practice wasn't moving with him and it really opened up uh, in working with Enkyo. So, yeah. Yeah. It's funny how, you know, I think I'm 20 years in and just found my teacher in a way. You know? Oh yeah. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's funny how that is, is you entered the stream, yeah. or you enter the way and then you're working. Yeah. And then at some point the teacher really appears. I That's think. right. That's right. And continues to appear in my mm. experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about it. And uh, one thing that uh, uh, that Enkyo would always say to me was uh, trust yourself. Mm-hmm. And and that also became a really important koan for me, like a personal koan. Uh, and part of that was, well, what self are you talking about for me to trust? Mm-hmm. And um and how do I do that? How do I continue to do that and unpack all of the ways that I've learned not to trust myself? And and if myself is actually, as Dogen says, reflected in the 10,000 things, that, that then everything is myself. And how do I really allow that to be my teacher? And, uh, you know, this unfolding moment of self that keeps emerging. And, and that's what I feel has become more and more my teacher these days. Um, especially with what's happening in the world, it's, uh, it's how to, how to trust, how to trust myself in the midst of what is really, really this, um, kind of war (laughs) that's happening, um, all around us. So yeah, those teachings still are very much alive. And so for those who are are listening in the future, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, who find this in the future worse, we're in the, uh, George Floyd was murdered uh, three weeks ago? Yeah. I, it's hard. Like, if it yes. just feels like time is so strange these days. It is strange. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're right in the middle of this. Uh, movement it feels like or I don't I, honestly I don't even know what it is uh, but it's what's it's, happening yeah I don't, it's, sometimes it's hard to have perspective so can you 
maybe say a little bit more about what that means to you to trust yourself in the as we are in this moment i just sort of set that up for the people who you know if they listen to it six months from now yeah yeah that's a good point because this time is um you know this time is passing right in front of us but Mm -hmm. uh this time includes the pandemic Mm -hmm. um it includes kind of this what feels like a re-emergence of an old theme, which is um, really kind of what I what I see is almost like a, a legacy trauma that has um, that has been continued and is now also coming coming up even more since the uh, the very publicized uh, killing of George Floyd. Um, you know, on using social media. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so that is kind of highlighted, uh, um, you know, a deep wound in our, in our nation um, and, and kind of uprooted a lot of, a lot of the foundational um, pieces of our, of our nation um, that has been, that has actually never, never reckoned with or accounted with um, some of the policies of of white supremacy and uh, the history of genocide and slavery, um, and continued continued um, disenfranchisement and and inequity uh, that we're seeing now today. So, you know, I think back when I was writing, uh, looking at the bio about how I grew up in the midst of civil rights, and and it's like, when do we actually kind of get to the root of all of this. Um, so when it's, when I say trust the self, it's like, how, how do we actually trust that self that is um, often termed no self, that is the complete interpenetration of all existence? How do we, com- how do we trust that self at the same time that our differences are so apparent? It reminds me of something that happened, um, you know, probably as a practitioner, how oftentimes the teachings that we receive are the teachings that are kind of like an offhanded remark or, a, mm-hmm. uh, totally. you know, something, yeah, something that's not like a Dharma talk or, a, you know, actual teaching. Um, and, you know, this, this question of the of the difference between our absolute reality and our, our relative reality. And um, Bernie Glassman um, was in our home temple here for, uh, I guess it was the uh, eye opening of the, of the two strings in here. Um, and this would have been, gosh, many years ago. I couldn't tell you the exact date, but he was here and uh and I was walking by him and I said, why is it, what's, what's, I really don't get it, this absolute and this relative. I said, I said, how do we deal with the utter dis- disparity and um, polarity among people and, um, and this absolute reality of oneness? And he just, he just didn't even look at me in his Bernie way. He just walked by and he said, it's the same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like that kind of boggles the mind and it's like there's no way to grasp onto that. But yeah, it, that's it. It is the same. And so 
so when I say that practice has become um, more, more and more about this moment, teacher, teacher is this moment, um, this moment being, you know, wearing my mask or not, you know, do I, how do I, how do I interact and how do I, how do, how do I interact with people who uh, actually have completely different views about things? Um, do I suddenly polarize with them or do I seek for that, that place where there's, uh, there's no difference? You know what I mean? So as a teacher now, and as a person who's living in this sort of historical moment, how, how, or what does Buddhism have to offer the practitioner, uh, as we're, as we are wrestling with these issues, I th- I think hopefully more intentionally about white supremacy um, and what it means to be white in the society, what the historical meaning is and and, uh, the legacy. Right. Right. Um, I can't speak too much for other folks in this regard Um, in terms of how does practice inform um, I would say for me, it, uh, it's like, if I have a limitation to practice as just being Zazen or just being what I do within an institution, um, then my practice is, is, and has been very limited. Um, and often in my experience, I have I have been in the space where I've used practice as a way to um, protect and insulate me from the harsh reality of what it's like in the world. Mm. Um, so if if my practice is doing that for me, making me feel better about, um, you know, what is a really horrible situation for people really close to me, then that's, then I, I feel that I need to really look at my practice and evaluate whether or not that's truly the teaching of the Buddha. Um, you know, the Buddha was, was out in the midst of the suffering. Um, I had the great privilege to go to India, uh, right before COVID hit. And be in in barefoot walking the streets of uh, uh, actually the place where was the epicenter when the COVID first hit in India. It was the epicenter. It was a very old, ancient Muslim area. Um, and just get a felt sense in my body of the crowdedness and the... Um, body-to-body nature of of people who are practicing deep practice in these some of the um the the mosques and the um um religious sites where food people were being fed who didn't have food um and and women were sitting right next to each other um as as the men were the ones who were entered into the holy sites and to feel the mud of of the place uh it was quite damp there and 
So my body, um, when, when COVID hit that area, it was like my body knew, um, some of, some of what it's like my feet knew what it was like to be there. And somehow that made a difference to being able to connect to, um, what is an impossibility for some people in this pandemic. And my heart opened up. And so, um, so that for me felt like a very real practice. Um, it wasn't sitting in the cushion being removed, imagining something, but it was remembering. And it's, it seems to me that, that our practice is really remembering our humanity. And if it takes me away from humanity, um, into some spiritual realm, then that's not the practice that I'm interested in. So, um, so what that's done for me has been, um, I, I think you mentioned in the introduction that, that Two Stream Zen, uh, is a practice space for people of color. Um, that, that what that means for me as a white teacher, um, I'm one stream and, uh, um, as a, as a white Dharma teacher supporting a space that is a primary, primary practice place for people of color. What that does for me is it, it places me in a relationship of having to recognize how, how it is for me and my white body, um, rather than, um, let's see if I can, if I can say this, rather than me assuming to know what, what it's like for, a person of color or trying to get them to teach me what it's like. It throws me back in terms of what is it like for me in these times owning a legacy that is linked to being an oppressor. How does that sit as an, as a, as a, an alive or a dead place within my body right now? And how do I do that? And what practice offers me is how do I do that? without an identification saying this is who I am or this is only who I am might be a better way of saying it. Um, but I am also this. So, um, so it's like, I am also the one whose feet were in the mud in that place in, in, uh, in India. I am also the one who is linked to a Dutch reformed father who's, lineage comes from from the Dutch reformed in uh in the Netherlands who split off and were part of the slave trade I'm also part of that and I'm also part of uh the yearning that I hold in my heart for for connection um for healing and so so how do how do I practice with this huge community that actually is a part of me as a felt sense inside of my body um, and not be stuck to my own singular identity. Um, so my practice has become as a teacher, how do I be able to sit with, with people? And I do a lot of, of the work that I do these days is being with people, either working with their bodies or um, sitting with them and really doing deep inquiry and sponsoring them on their pathway to know themselves better. Um, 
as a way of healing so that we can begin to under under not understand but uncover um this unified part of who this unified essence i would say of who we all are um which is i think i'd say that's pretty close to what we're doing in terms of traditional buddhist practice i was thinking about you know when you when you mentioned this is a while back when you mentioned um you know just the offhanded the offhand comment that that bernie gave you yeah for, yeah for me there's this i was talking to mitra roshi okay a while ago and uh i just remember her she was i don't know we were just talking about something and and uh she said yeah but what is there to defend mm-hmm. and I, <laughs> and for whatever reason exactly in that moment it hit me like right. it just became oh yeah and yeah. then i saw it again on your website Oh, what'd you say? Well, it just says, uh, it was like in your purposes or your guidelines or something like that. It was like one of these little things. It's like, what is there to defend? There's nothing to defend. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then within the context of this sort of white and whiteness and um, I think part of it, right, there's the responsibility for all of it. And then there's this, I look and I see white people uh really holding on and i'm like what is there to defend there's nothing to defend let that that part is not real let it go like yeah we can be responsible for it and it's like we there's nothing there yeah Mm -hmm. Mm yeah and how do i hold how do i hold compassion for um you know how do i how do i not guard my own heart um, when I, when I see the, what most, most of me re- reacts and thinks is, um, is craziness or, yeah. or, you know, buffoonery, <laughs> you know, just cannot believe how do I, how do I, you know, not go, not go into blame and, um, and hold that wise, wise critic, I mean, because that's important too. I know that from my own experience. How do I hold the the wisdom? We could say in in Buddhist practice, the wisdom that can kind of see clearly, and also the heart that just knows the interconnectedness and um, and holds the love really. Hmm. And how do we do that in a practice um, when when we're we're seeing the great harm that's being done? to our planet, to, to animals, to, um, to other individuals, because somehow, um, you know, we've, maybe if, if we're a white person, we're, we're holding, holding, um, you know, in the, in the privilege, the ignorance that, that is also kind of blissful, you know, that, that is disconnected from it all. And that can, uh, um, you know, that's, that's pretty strong practice right there. We don't need to seek it in terms of, um, we don't need to seek it out in terms of teachings that it's like the teachings that when I, when we did koan practice, I, I think it's probably the same in your, in 
the quantum school, the little bit I've had experience with, of that the the koan is alive in in this moment. If it's just you know, if it's just knowing what what um, some ancient Chinese folks did, right? Then it's it's not alive in terms of it's only alive if it's right right here, right? And yeah. um, and this is the moment that it's right here. And so for for that, I'm happy that I mean happy is not the not exactly the right word, but I am um, inspired that the possibility that it's right here in terms of the suffering, um, it can't be ignored or denied. Um, and my hope is that we don't fall back um, in terms of privilege, in terms of structures of whiteness, in terms of um, capitalist, um, you know, uh, who holds the money, who holds the bank, um, that we begin to realize that our our life is dependent upon the life of every single person, mm-hmm. every single being. You know, there's nothing that's, who would say that? I'm trying to remember. Someone said, there is no junk. There is nothing that can <laughs> be thrown out. I wish I could remember who that teacher was, but yeah, there's no junk. Yeah. You know, I, we don't need to keep hammering this, but it just, as you were, as you were speaking, it just, um, there was something about what you were saying that made me say, yeah, right. There's a lot of people want to walk the path of liberation and hold on to whiteness. And it's like, yeah, that doesn't work. Like you have to like, Mm. it's actually liberation from that as well. And, yeah, I th- and I think it also is through that. Uh-huh. Yeah, is like, well, I can speak from my own experience that um, that it was it was not apparent to me for um, many years as a young person um, that I was, you know, whiteness. It didn't. Mm-hmm. It it was not apparent to me that I knew that I was different. Um, And I knew that I was white, but I didn't know what came along with that. And um, it took many years for me to to begin to realize that that there were what are called privileges. It's um, it took a lot of experience for me to realize that my experience holding on to holding on or or being white was actually traumatic. Mm. Um, and that kind of opened things up for me. It, it's not definitely not the same trauma that Mm -hmm. is held by people who have, um, who have been really subject to extreme suppression and oppression. Um, but it is nonetheless, it is, it is a huge loss. It's a huge loss in terms of community for me as a white person. Um, it's a huge, it's a huge loss for me in terms of, um, how I grew up, the friends that I had growing up in a black community, um, those connections got lost. So personally and interpersonally, I experienced 
um, great loss in terms of being being white. What I do not experience being a white person is the is the uh, the fear of institutions. Um, what I don't experience is that that the systems that are in place don't support me, and that the actual country that I live in doesn't support me. Um, that I do not experience, and uh, and that started to come alive for me uh, in terms of recognizing that yes, I also have pain and suffering around whiteness um, and burdens that I carry in terms of that, uh, but they are not the same. Uh, and that for me to uh, to not recognize the difference there doesn't allow for me to actually, um, like it's not enough for me just to have good relationships with people of color. I, as a white person, I also need to wake up to to the other level of oppression, which is very hard for me to see. The oppression that shows up when when uh, when I, as a white person, walk into an all white uh, Dharma institution, let's say, that it's a very different experience for me than it would be for a person of color to do the same thing. Just that act would be different, and. Um, to stay committed to to seeing that change, I have to really continue to do the work of waking up to that um, in terms of the the institutional change and the need for that in terms of us being able to experience that um, commonness of of just sitting in a room together, sitting zazen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Catherine Anraku Handorp Sensei encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for Two Stream Zen at twostreamszen.org. I'll also include a link in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of the Zen study group for only $7 when using the promo code SBB. The study group offers a close reading of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. Don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I am your host, Ian Whitemar, and I hope you'll join me again next week.